if you haven't reaped the, the theme that's coming up in these songs and also in our scriptures. Yes, the, the, the topic of peace has been on my mind for, I don't know, at least a week and a half. Um, I'm a teacher and I'm a principal, and so as you can imagine, I get to navigate how do we make peace in a community of a middle school. And middle schools tend to be dominated by peace. Middle schoolers just love to get along. They love one another. They are always preferring the other person, making way for, for each other. It's the most beautiful thing. And so I figured that I should just bring that kind of peace that happens in a middle school right in to our church. Can you imagine? Oh, my. No, one of my middle schoolers, as she was reflecting on peace, we took a time to reflect on that on Wednesday. And she said, I see conflict every single day in my class. I was just reflecting on that and thinking about that. What's that like as you go through the day for this student as she's saying, I'm seeing conflict every day. But it's not too different from our own lives. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to first pray because I'm looking forward to what God has to say this morning as well. Father, indeed, we wait on your word. We are a people who inclines our ear, Lord, to hear what you are saying. We are a people who are waiting and eager, Lord, for your words from your mouth. Lord, words that we have longing for. Words, Lord, that nourish us. Words that are our light to our path. Lord, words of life. So, Lord, I, we come to you with expectation. We come to you with hope. Lord, we come to you in need. We come to you in poverty. And you said that we are blessed if we are poor in spirit because, Lord, then you are the one who is going to fill us. So, Father, I pray that you would bring us to you in a posture of poverty in our spirit. Lord, such that then you would enrich us with your word, enrich us with your spirit, enrich us with yourself. God, I have need to hear what you are saying as well. So, Lord, I pray then that you would prepare my lips to speak but also prepare your word before us, as you've already been doing. And Lord, even after the delivery of your word, Lord, as we are receiving it, Lord, we want to continue to meditate upon your word such that it bears fruit in our lives, Lord. We have this moment in time right here, Lord, where we can look into your word and reflect upon you and reflect upon who we are at this moment. So that then, Lord, those areas in which you are trying to address in our lives, Lord, as we look into the mirror and see ourselves, that you would then be able to address that we would walk out of here renewed, that we would walk out of here, Father, maybe a little bit more cleaned up in our face, Lord, that we would walk out of here rejoicing more and being more and more like you as we gaze into the mirror of your word. So speak very clearly and winsomely to us, your people, bringing us peace in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a photo that captured my imagination this week. I told Abby, I said, this has got to be the coldest photo of the year. And not coldest in temperature. But um, it's a picture of a man taken in the news. This older gentleman, he's 77 years old. And he's holding a gun. And he's pointing it just off camera angle. Almost like it's a movie shot. Just, just off camera. And it's clear that he has just fired his weapon because right in front of his face, right about here, is a bullet casing. 
It's incredible to capture a moment in time like that. But when you see a picture like that, you just wonder, what happened? Well, for the past three weeks or so, um, in Panama, there have been protests about a pipeline that's continued, or not a pipeline, but uh, these copper mines and the contract being extended, I think, for another 20 years. And the community is in turmoil about this. And so they've shut down a road, putting barricades across the road, whether it's trees, tires, whatever they can, to shut down this road for miles upon miles. And you can imagine what that does to the community. There are many doctor's appointments that have been missed. I believe it's hundreds of appointments that have been missed because of this blockade. Also, schools have had to be closed because of this blockade. There's a lot of things, residual effects from this shutdown because they're trying to raise attention to their cause. And so one man in, in his car, I believe with his girlfriend, um, he's a former lawyer, I guess he's a retired lawyer, and uh, used to, I guess, teach college at one point. He turns to her and said, this ends today. This ends now. And he got out of his car. And he marches forward along the road, comes up to the people who are protesting, and they're playing music, and they're shouting their, um, you know, their sayings, as you do in a protest, right? But they've got music going. It's kind of like a celebratory kind of a protest. Interesting. Um, but he's looking at them, and he's basically saying, you need to clear out. And as they're not responding... He pulls out his gun and just holds it and is just like waving it around and basically telling them, move this stuff. And I guess as you look at it, you just go, okay, he's expecting probably that as soon as this weapon comes out, he's going to intimidate them to do what he thinks needs to be done. But nobody moved. They just started talking with him and just basically, they're agitated at the weapon, but they didn't start to remove the blockade, which is what he wanted. So as he's standing there, he is insisting and then he just starts to throw the pieces to the side. So he throws a flag down to the side, he picks up a tire, casts it to the side, and one of the people there just basically says, what are you doing, why don't you, why don't you just shoot then? And another person says, are you going to kill us? And he says, do you want to be first? And he aims his gun and immediately shoots one of the men there and kills him. Shocking. And after that person falls to the ground, another person comes over and is just like, how do you respond in that moment? And he promptly then shoots that person. I believe he may have thrown some more of the blockade to the side and walks back to his car. As he's walking back to his car, one of the people that's further back from the scene says, do you know what happened? And he speaks through, I think, the roll-down window and says, yes, I just killed one person and shot another. And he continued walking to his car. Gets in his car with his girlfriend and says, let's go. That's cold. And that picture captured my imagination. A man who did not know how to resolve a conflict. He thought that he could find a way to end the disturbance now. But in what he did, he ended no disturbance. He created a further disturbance. But this is an example of our world in a cry for peace. It's an extreme example. But there are others that I could share. Where I sit as a principal, every year we have parents who are looking for, what school can my child go to? 
And one of the things that my head of school has characterized it as the situation we sit in today in Minneapolis especially, but also in other places, we have educational refugees. People who are looking for where can my child go to school and learn and be safe. But they feel it's hard to escape the schools where they feel unsafe and the schools where they are not learning. And so they are coming to whatever schools are available that feel like a safer school. And so they come to us. And I sat in the room with some parents who were basically insisting and crying and, and eager for, can we have an opportunity at Hope Academy maybe? Because where my child has been has not been safe. They're fleeing a place that lacks peace. And the students as well, as they come and they go, well, well, the school that I was at, Mr. Sims, I was bullied all the time. Will it be different here? And in one sense, I want to promise them and go, yeah, it's absolutely different here. And it is different in our, in our school. And I thank the Lord for that. One of the things that we often talk about in our upper school is, and parents even notice this as they come through, in our middle school, our lockers, which line the hall so that every student can have a place to store their items, they don't have locks on them. Students could get their own locks, but they don't have locks on them. It's kind of a community where they can trust one another. And so we haven't really had any major issues there with that situation because there's a community here where they feel safe. So there's no locks on any of the lockers. Um, and yet at the same time, I know when I look this child in the face and they go, I've been bullied where I came from, I have to prepare them of like, we still have real people in our school. And you're going to encounter some trouble. What's different is how we navigate that. And also the hope that draws us um, to take on these challenges of how do we get along with one another? How do we pursue peace? These are fights for peace, and these are cries for peace in our own community. Where we sit at, at this time in history, you have Hamas and Israel embroiled in a conflict. And you have that conflict is spreading around the world as people try to figure out what side of this conflict am I going to be on? Palestine. Israel, Hamas, what do I do? And it's coming up in our elections, and there's these, these expressions of different positions that people can take and that people can hold. Do you stand with Israel? Do you stand with Palestine? Conflict. Or Ukraine and Russia. And again, this comes up in our news, right? And it comes up in our elections. What do we do with this? Because Ukraine and Russia is not just about Ukraine and Russia. It's also about America and our way of life. And it's also, and this conflict that is in one location also spreads around. We have a cry for peace. But this cry for peace also goes back to the earliest times. So when we think about Genesis and creation, God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them one rule, and he says, hey, look, you can eat of every single tree that you want to, but this one over here, you don't partake of that tree. And Satan sees his opportunity, and so he comes by, and he says, hey, did God really say that? And Eve says, well, yeah, he said that. And he says, well, God knows that when you eat of this tree, you're going to be like him. Your eyes will be opened. And so when Eve partakes of the fruit, and then Adam partakes of the fruit, Immediately what happens to their relationship of peace with God? As soon as God shows up, the magnet that used to draw them together, now they are repelled. Peace is gone. Peace with God has been broken. And not only is peace with God broken, but as God pursues them and calls out and he says, where are you? And Adam responds. Right? He says, I heard you and I hid myself. 
because I was naked. And God says, who told you that you were naked, right? And then he comes to this question, why did you eat of that fruit? And Adam then points at Eve and says, the woman that you gave me. And I want us to ponder that for a moment, because we, we often think about that moment. Um, but I've never really considered that moment and what that must have done to Eve's heart. When you hear your husband in that moment answering to God and saying, she did this. What happened to their peace? I don't think that they had peace in that moment. I think there's a brokenness in that relationship. And so then Eve also then points at the serpent. And from that now they are driven out from God's place for them. Driven out from Eden. And actually I think we get our first sword in the Bible when God has to protect man from the tree of life because it would not be good for us to in sin partake of the tree of life and live forever in this broken condition. But our peace is gone. Now the interesting thing about this is that all those examples that we just talked about, this man on the road in Panama, this, these students and these parents that are looking for a place that is not going to be full of bullying, these this conflict between Hamas and Israel, conflict between Ukraine and Russia, conflict even between Adam and Eve, there's a sense of, these are examples of attack, maybe with the exception of Adam and Eve in that situation, but these are examples of fights against peace. There is a fight and a conflict going on that is erupting into, we are breaking our peace with one another. But that's not the only example where there is a lack of peace. When I was born, we, I was born at the end of a period that we call the Cold War. And how many shots were fired in the Cold War? How much did that fighting erupt? And how many lives were necessarily lost? And I may be painting with a broad brush, but the idea behind the Cold War is that this, this is fizzle. This coldness, this iciness of our relationships, as we are not on the same page with a competing world power. Cold War, but no battles, per se. You think about situations that can go on with separated families, where nobody's angry, no, where, sorry, where nobody is shouting, nobody is punching, nobody is actively fighting, but maybe a son moves a far distance away, and the relationship is broken. There is a kind of a, we'll just live and let live, and we separate from one another. These are examples where there is a lack of peace. You can imagine also in the homes where, maybe in your home you've seen this happen from time to time, where we can give one another what we call the silent treatment. Something happens and all of a sudden, what's wrong? We do that to one another. Is that peace? But maybe we pat ourselves on the back and I go, well, I didn't yell. I didn't bless him out. I didn't curse him out. So I kept the peace. But did I? These would be examples of flights from peace. So we can fight against peace, but we can also have a lack of peace in the sense that we can run from it. I want to come to our first uh, story of the Bible that really captured my imagination. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13.
Second Samuel chapter 13, this is a story of David. And Absalom. So we're going to linger in this story for a bit, and I want us to notice how much there are flights from peace. But there won't just be flights from peace. You will see moments of fights against peace as well. So in 2 Samuel chapter 13, it starts off with this, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. In his lust for her, he wants to be with her, and he can't figure out a right way to make that happen, which is really sad. So he has a friend who comes to him and gives him some counsel, bad counsel, and basically comes up with a scheme in which he will rape his sister. And that's something that you look at that and you say, that, what would that do to a family? The brokenness in that family. Right? I, we, there's so much to talk about in that situation, how wrong is rape and how wrong his lust is and how much he doesn't control his own emotions and his own desires. But when that sin is done, what I want to focus on is that kind of a sin popping up in a family. What does that do? What is the father's responsibility? What do the rest of the siblings do in that situation? What, is there any fixing the relationship there between this brother and his sister? Really, he needs to be judged. And the sad thing is, that after he commits this sin, here, says, I want to skip down to verse 20 to 23. Absalom, who is Tamar's brother, finds out what's happened. So they're all children of David, but David has many wives. Another problem. We can't get into all the problems here. But David has many wives, and from those many wives, he has different children by different ones of them. And Absalom and Tamar seem to be by the same wife. And then um, this, other, uh, this other son, sorry, I'm forgetting his name in a moment, um, Amnon, was from another wife. So Absalom finds out that his sister has been taken advantage of by his other brother, his half-brother. And he's, this is when he talks to her and says, And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother, regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. He's trying to find a way to resolve the situation. But he's the brother. There's a father that should be taking action. And not just a father that should be taking action, there is a king that should be taking action. By the way, I want us to think about the, kind, the king here, who's the one that should be taking action. The father is David. The king is David. Now we know from another passage of scripture, from uh, I believe it is 1st or 2nd Kings, that David had another son, and what it said about his relationship with his son is very interesting. The son is Adonijah, and he says, the Bible tells us, that David had really never told that son, what are you doing? Or basically told that son, no. He has a relationship with the son where he has never corrected his son. 
Now, if that's his relationship with Adonijah, it probably is a part of also his relationship with his, a lot of his other children. So he hasn't engaged with the right kind of correction with Adonijah and probably with some here, and we'll see that reflected in how David does not respond with Amnon. By the way, a side note on that, but as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I, I teach and I work with different students, so I see different things um, that go on. If the child is old enough to disobey, the child is old enough to be held accountable to obey. So it's a failure there for David that he never corrected his son when he needed it. And so when Amnon here does wrong, what does David do? Verse 21, it says, But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Which basically means he was very angry. He's upset. He should have been upset. And the statement ends. He's upset. But does he take action? No action. And Absalom, verse 22, spake unto his brother, Amnon, neither good nor bad. This is what we call the silent treatment. So Absalom shuts down, and he's not going to interact with his brother at all. He's waiting for dad to have done something, and dad hasn't done anything. And it came to pass, verse 23, after how many years? Two full years, where this brother never interacts with his other brother, good or bad. Silent treatment that goes for two years. Absalom has a birthday. No interaction with the brother for good or bad. Amnon has a birthday. No interaction with his brother for good or bad. New Year, they're not celebrating together. Passover, they're not gathering together for good or bad. Two years goes by. And not only that, but two years where David, his reaction was he was very wroth. Continuing, let's skip down to verses 38 to 39. So David, Absalom basically comes up with a scheme to take justice into his own hands. And so he says to his father, I'm going to throw a party, Dad. Would you come? And his dad goes, I'm not about to come. And he says, well, if you're not going to come, can you send Amnon to this party? And David says, why? Which is an interesting question to ask. If your, brother, if your son's going to throw a party, you would expect him to invite family. But David's response in that is, why? Verse 26, sorry if I, if I go back, says, Then Absalom said, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? It seems that David is aware that there's not really a positive relationship between them. They're not at peace. But he doesn't engage with that question. He just says, Why? And then he sends Am Amnon to go with him. Well, the party happens, and at that party, Absalom has a scheme to kill Amnon, his brother, and he kills Amnon. So notice, two years of flying from peace, the silent treatment. And then in a moment, he exercises his fight against peace. Our world is so broken. And the King David did not do what was in his power to do to bring peace. So now he has a son who's been killed by another son. So verse 38, says, so Absalom, after he's killed his brother, Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there, how long? Three years. 
So now, after two years of silent treatment between one brother and another, now you have three years where one son is now off in a different land, no conversations with dad. But they're not actively fighting. They're at peace, aren't they? And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom. Notice this. Now we're seeing again into the heart response of David. He was mad, wroth, when Amnon took advantage of his daughter. And here, after Absalom has killed his son Amnon and run away, David is longing to go forth to Absalom. But that's kind of where it sits. It says, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead, but no action there. And three years goes by of a broken relationship. Three years. Absalom is now three years older. If he was 18 at the time that his sister was taken advantage of, he is now five years older than that. Two years of silent treatment with his brother, 20, 23. Now, I'm just making up an age. I don't know how old they were, right? But I'm just saying now five years has gone by from this original sin. So then Joab sees the situation and he knows King David really, really wants to be with his son, but the sadness is they're in a broken relationship. They're not at peace. They're not fighting, but they are escaping their peace. They're not engaging their conflict. So then Joab does something to bring this about. So he brings, talks to a woman and he gets this woman to bring up a story to David that would make David start to realize the brokenness in his relationship with his son. And then she appeals to David, David, can you just go and send for your son and get him back from this land that he's been at for three years and call him back? And so then David responds to her appeal in chapter 14. Look at verses 22 to 28. And I'm sorry for walking us through this story, but I just want us to see how much when we leave an unresolved situation there, faking as if there is peace, it actually doesn't bring peace. So verse 22. After this woman has made her appeal, David listens. Joab comes back into the room and he's like, okay, thank you, David, for listening. So that's where we're at in verse 22. Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Wow, here's a guy who's gone out to pursue the kind of peace that needs to be made. Brings the son back to the father. And as he brings him back, notice what happens next. And the king said, actually backing up to verse 23, Joab arose, went to Geshur, brought Absalom to Jerusalem, right to the city where David is. But how does David respond? And the king said, let him turn. Let him turn to his own house. And let him not, not what? Not see my face. And the opportunity to engage with whatever that conflict was and all the conflict that was there, five years later, he misses the chance to deal with the problem. Let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Hmm. But in all Israel, there was none to be so praised, so much praised as Absalom for his beauty, for this, from the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he pulled his head, and it talks about how long his hair was and how beautiful his hair was, seems really interesting and weird. But yeah, he has, he's a beautiful young man. And Israel's kind of captivated by that. Verse 27, and unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of a fair countenance. So Absalom dwelt how long? 
Look at verse 28. Two full years in Jerusalem. Now how many years have gone by? Seven. Two years of the silent treatment to his brother, three years off in Gesher, and now two years in the same city, and he does not see his father's face. They are faking peace for so long. So then, Absalom comes up with his own plan to meet his father. It's a really messed up plan. He burns his friend Joab's field, and Joab comes to him and says, why did you do this? And he says, you, need to, you didn't really actually accomplish what our goal was, was for me to be back with my father. So then, finally, they work it out to verse 33, where Absalom is able to go and see his father, the king. Let's see how this interaction goes. Maybe now they will engage the conflict. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So is there peace? Look at the very next verse, chapter 15. And it came to pass after this. And don't skip over that phrase, after this. There's something left unsatisfied, something left unresolved. So that after this, Adam, sorry, Absalom takes some action. Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood by the way, beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had any controversy, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed deputed of the king, to hear thee. The king is not going to hear your issue. Now, what's probably at the root of this? The king has not heard Absalom's issue. And we're not clear on whether or not Absalom even ever carried his issue to David at all. But now, the problem in the family is a problem in the kingdom. And from this moment, Absalom is going to seek to overthrow his father and take his father's throne. We have a conflict that went unresolved for seven years, that results in a civil war. We faked peace for seven years. And how many opportunities were there to engage with the conflict? When David called Absalom finally after two years of him being in Jerusalem, all those seven years, and he could have said then, let's deal with this conflict, son, but he kisses him and that's it. He doesn't resolve the conflict. Or two years before that, when he brought his son back from Gesher, and his son comes in, instead of saying, don't let him see my face, he could have said, let's resolve this now, but he doesn't. Or how about three years before that? Before Absalom goes and kills Amnon, he could have taken care of it then. Or really, originally, when Amnon committed the sin against his, his daughter Tamar, he could have dealt with the conflict then. But they faked peace for years. And is that just a David problem? Or is that a you and me problem? How much do we fake peace? I think that we look at the story like this, and I don't think that David intentionally set up this conflict to aggravate and to grow and to fester like that. He seems to not have been equipped to navigate peace. So we have this cry for peace that we see in David. He is angry when his daughter is raped. He's also longing for his son when his son goes off to Gesher for three years but he doesn't take right action. And it may be that he didn't know what right action to take. 
So not only do we need a cry for peace, but there's actually, we need a way for peace. So that's my second point, the way to peace. I want to think about a couple of passages that can speak to how we pursue peace. Romans 12, if you would turn there with me. Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. It's a lot of turning in scripture. But Romans 12 speaks about peace here. In Romans 12, starting at verse 14, God talks about a way of navigating peace that is very different from our human way. He says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense or return to no man evil for evil. Don't do evil when somebody else does evil to you. That's not the way in which we pursue peace. Whereas Martin Luther King said, right, hate does not drive out hate. Only love can do that. Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably. So there's something that needs to lie within me for me to live peaceably with all men, as it says here. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will replace, repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So already, a part of the picture of how we actually bring peace is that we overcome evil with good. We need to be the kind of people we are given an opportunity to be the kind of people that bring in something into the situation that is missing. And what is missing is the love of God. Another passage, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, a very familiar passage for a lot of us. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus says this. He says, moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, if your brother does wrong to you, offends you, does something that doesn't sit well with you, if your brother trespasses against thee, go. Go. This is what David did not do. Right? His son rapes his daughter, and he is angry. He goes nowhere. Go. There is a movement and that movement is one on my end if I am to be the one to make peace. If your brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. This is what David did not do. It doesn't seem that he went to Amnon and said, here's what you did that was wrong and I now need to address this. How can we resolve this? And it probably would have involved judgment because he's the king and his son has committed a crime. But he says, go and tell him his fault. In our day, and in our situation, in our relationship, that means we pursue that person who has done me wrong. Has somebody wronged you? It's, is it still on your mind? Is it still on your heart? Go. And go how? Tell him. It's a conversation. 
It's not a go and It's a go and tell. Here's what you did that was wrong. Here's how that affected me. Tell him his fault. And tell him his fault. How? Between thee and him alone. It's a private conversation. It's not everybody's business. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And notice that word, gained thy brother. I want to think about that word for a moment. Gained. It's like you have now won something. You've not just won something. You've won someone. There is a person that you have gained. That's what results when we actually resolve a conflict. Have I gained that other person? So the question that we should ask ourselves is, as I am trying to resolve conflict, am I gaining my brother and my sister? Have we gotten to that place where we have gained one another? That's the pursuit here that we are called to. He says, but if he will not hear thee, Oh, sorry, I do want to stick with that word gain for another moment. The word peace that is used, especially when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. The idea there, it comes from a word that means to join. So you kind of have two things, and you join them, making one. That's what it means to make peace. And that's why when we fight against peace, the problem is you have two that are in a clash. That's a fight against peace. But it's also why there's a problem when we fly from peace and we escape it and we want to fake like we have peace. We don't have one. We have you over here and you over here. We're not actively fighting against one another, but we're not joined. Peace means to join again. You have gained thy brother. Verse 16, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. Because you're trying to pursue your brother and you did so privately to work that out, but that didn't work. Take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So this is a relationship within the family of God. And the idea is that we are pursuing one another as much as we can. And when it gets to the point where that person is saying, I'm not only not hearing you, I'm actually not hearing God's people. Then it's kind of to a place where we can't be joined. But we have pursued as much as lies within us, living peaceably. So these passages really speak to this. And one of the things that I've begun to use with our kids at um, Hope Academy is a picture that comes from a book called The Peacemaker, written by Ken Sandy. It's a very, has a very, very helpful way of navigating making peace. And what he does is he talks about peace and making peace as navigating a slippery slope. So it would be kind of as if there were a hill here that this pulpit was on top of, and it slopes down this way, and it also slopes down this way. And what we want to do is we want to find a way to stay on the top of this hill, but when we're in conflict, we inevitably, because of the sin that's in our own heart, because of our own natural, natural um, ways, we can slip one way or another. And slipping one way is a way of escaping peace, flying from, flying from peace, or faking peace. We want to act as if we have peace, but we don't really have it. Another way, which is the way we tend to think about more often, fighting or breaking peace, attacking. This would be kind of the classic situation of fight or flight in a conflict situation. We're not getting along, and I'm either going to go and fight with this person, or I'm going to fly away 
and avoid the situation. And both of them are sin choices. Because what we're not doing is making peace and joining together. So there are different actions when it comes to um, this idea of faking peace. And this was really helpful for me because I often can, can go there. And so faking peace can be, I'm in denial. I say, no, nah, we're not really in a conflict. Eh, it's, it's really nothing. But in my mind, maybe I'm playing it over and over again, but I'm trying to say, no, 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 it's not really. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's not. It's, nothing's going on. It's an escape. And I'm faking as if there is peace. I want it to seem like it. Maybe I'm afraid of navigating conflict. Maybe I'm afraid that if I go to this person and I say, look, here's the thing that's going on that's wrong, I'm afraid that that will lead to brokenness. And that's a real fear, and I understand that. But it's a sin choice in the fact that, am I trusting God when I do that and when I take that action? If God tells me if there's a, something here that I need to deal with and I need to go to my brother, and I go, well, I'm not going to do that thing, am I trusting God? Another way of, of trying to escape is maybe avoiding the whole person. Not to, so not just denying, but I'm also going to avoid that person. Yeah, this person and I, we just don't get along, so we always fight, so I'm just never just going to, never going to engage with them. And there is a sense where, with some people, if I know that I'm going to constantly be in a battle, I need to find a right way of just not bringing up problems. I don't want to do that. But if what's going on is there's a history of something that we have never addressed? Is that trusting God? Am I making peace? So this idea of the flight from the conflict, where I'm going to fake as if there's peace, we have an issue where we are being called to trust God so that we can bravely and rightly and righteously engage conflict to make peace. But on this side, I can fall off on this way, which is an attack, where maybe I'm subtle about it. Maybe I'm just gossiping about that person. Right? I'm not going to go talk to them and try to work it out. I'm going to and let other people know, here's what happened. And I'm going to sour the whole situation with other people. That's an attack. And it may feel like it's not an attack because I never actually hit them. You know what I'm saying? I never actually you know, called them out in public. But I did all these things to attack them in subtle ways. Or maybe it's an outright attack where I actually do say something to them in, in a moment to attack them. Not to say, here's the issue and let's resolve this, but to make them feel some type of way. To get even. That's an attack. Or maybe I actually take physical action and I attack, as that man did in the road in Panama. These are attack ways. And it's not trusting God. What it's saying is, I need to take this into my own hands. And we have a world that also tells us that these two ways are probably the best ways to go. Stand up for yourself, so you need to correct that person. Or just, you know, you do you, they do them, never deal with it. That's kind of where the world takes us. And I was talking with a student even a couple of weeks ago, and he was, <laughs> it was the smallest offense. But he's sitting there, and he's so hurt in his heart because conflict brings up something in my heart, doesn't it? That's why it's so serious. Even if it's a small thing, we can cry about a small thing because it's our heart that's affected. Not that we're weak, but our heart is touched, and we're meant to be touched in our heart by one another. So a student was just staring at him in class. 
and it bothered him so much he had to say something about it. <laughs> so as he and I are talking, I was like, well, did you have to say something? Well, what am I supposed to do, Mr. Sims? I'm like, well, there's any number of things that you could have done. Did you need to take it into your own hand? Could you talk with the teacher if there was really a problem? I could have. Sure. Okay. How are you not trusting God, the reason that you felt like you needed to respond? And he's reflecting on that, and he's understanding, but also at the same time, he's like, but... And what he's not trusting is that God can make that situation okay. And what he's not seeing is that he has an opportunity that if there's something really going on in the heart of that classmate, he can navigate to that in a way that he can bring not only peace to himself, but to that classmate who is not pursuing peace. So if we're going to stay on top of the slippery slope, as Ken Sandy puts it, we need to find ways of making peace. And he really talks about three ways. There are some things that are so minor that we do need to overlook them. The Bible talks about that. I think it says in Proverbs that it's the glory of kings to overlook a matter. There are certain things that we need to go, that's, it's not an issue. It's not an issue. And it can be hard sometimes to really know what's the difference then between overlooking something and being in denial about something. Here's a good way to maybe know the difference. If it continues to stay on my mind, it's probably not the kind of thing to overlook. If I'm going to continue to be bothered, I need to probably have a conversation and say, this hurt me and affected me in a certain way. But if I can overlook it and say, I know that no harm was meant and it's a small thing, Love covers a multitude of sins. Because, honestly, if we all paused at every single sin against one another, we would never get over all the conversations we would have to have. So there are some things that we need to be able to overlook in love. But maybe if it's not something that should be overlooked, it's something that then we need to talk about it. And that's what Matthew 18 brings up of go to that person alone. And there's other scriptures that mention the same thing. And then to... Um, there's also ways of, if I can't get to, there, get to that place of peace between me and that person by ourselves, get help. Bring somebody else in who is a wise and a spiritual person who can help to bring peace to the situation. But I want to close with one more thing, and that is the why of peace. The why of peace. A couple of scriptures. One Ben read the first one, Matthew 5, verse 9. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They shall be called the children of God. That is the why of peace. If we are to be fully living out as God's people and as God's children, we have an opportunity and a calling to make peace. Luke chapter 6 also uh, puts it a very similar way because it's a kind of a parallel passage here to the Matthew 5 passage. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them which cur that curse you, and pray for them which dis despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer him also the other. And him that taketh up thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. 
And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And then he goes on down, and he says, verse 35, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And, notice this words, these words here, ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. In so doing, in this peaceful response and in this peacemaking response, we shall be living out as the children of God. That's our calling. That is the why of our peace. And so there's two points that I would attach with that. One, we must trust God. There are certain things that won't ever be received where we find ourselves joined with the other person. Maybe they are going to continue to pursue hatred. Maybe they're going to continue to pursue difficulty and conflict. I should trust God that God has appointed a day for vengeance. In Revelations, he talks about people gathered at the throne of God and saying to God, how long until you deal with those that have killed us? And God says, wait. There is that time coming. If I take things into my own hands, am I trusting God? No. I need to receive what God says to those people around his throne and what he is also saying to me and to us. That God handles it. He's my father. And let God be God and let me be his child. So this idea of being the children of God is not just that we are like him, but also that we understand that we are a child and that he is the father and that he handles it. That's the posture of a child. But also, too, not just trust God, but team up with God. If God says he's the one who sends rain on the just and on the unjust, then I should be doing the same. And I'll close with really two scriptures. One, 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says this. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What is our real opportunity when we engage in conflict? That we are given an opportunity to call one another into reconciliation, not just with one another, but truly and fully with God. And that picture is also brought up in Ephesians chapter 2, which is also the passage that Ben read this morning. And this is the one that I'm going to start to close with. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Notice what happens here when we talk about peace being joining. Notice what happens here when we talk about the fact that it is not just a relationship between one another, but it's a relationship between God that we are called to reconcile one another with God. He says here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, for he is our peace, Christ is our peace, who hath made both one, joined. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, how many? One new man. So making peace. That's the message of Christ. That's the message for us. That in our lives, and when we navigate conflict, we are to be the ones that, like Christ, we are to make of two situations, one, oneness, unity, 
making peace.